UVA and Virginia Tech's basketball teams are rolling even as more and more ACC games are postponed. And we're going to be joined by former UVA linebacker Charles Snowden. He'll discuss his college career, his decision to turn pro, playing football during a pandemic, and his role in his team's efforts for social justice. All that and more this week on Teal and Barber. Welcome in to episode 37 of Teal and Barber, the Richmond Times-Dispatch and Richmond.com's Virginia Tech, UVA, and ACC sports podcast. I'm Mike Barber, ACC beat writer for the paper, and here joining me as he always does, my co-host, the 13-time sports writer of the year and the Virginia Sports Hall of Famer, David Teal. David, how are you? I'm doing great, Mike. Good afternoon. A little disappointed by the recent uh, postponement news, though. Yes, as has been the case throughout the year and at times during football as well. Uh, we've lost both of the games that we were planning to cover Wednesday. Uh, Virginia and North Carolina State was scrubbed because of continuing COVID issues in the Wolfpack program. That decision was made over the weekend. And then today, as we record this podcast on, on Tuesday, uh, we found out that Virginia Tech and Boston College was off and you know, that one was a positive test at Boston College, which has been one of the most successful athletic departments in terms of avoiding positive tests. And their coach, Jim Christian, told us yesterday, hey, maybe a little lucky. He said, knock on wood. We've been yeah. able to avoid the positive test. Well, Jim, you might have jinxed it because <laughs> yeah. or you didn't knock on wood when you said it, yeah. because now that game has gone uh, the way of so many that we've seen already and, and just reminds us of what a challenge it's going to be to get through this year. Yeah, we're not going to clearly get to 20 conference games probably for anyone. And, you know, what Virginia now has three ACC games, mm-hmm. Wake Forest, Virginia Tech, and NC State that have been postponed. And this is Virginia Tech's second postponement, if I'm recalling correctly, with UVA and Boston College. And, and time is starting to become yes. of the essence, right? Because yeah. uh, it'll be interesting to see because, you know, right now what we understand is they're, they're committed to the idea of a conference tournament. But I was talking to somebody in, in a mid-major league who said, you know, you may end up getting to a point where teams scrap the conference tournament idea and say, hey, let's use that week to get in a couple more games, to maybe have teams play three more conference games because the NCAA lowered the threshold to make the NCAA tournament to 13. And when they did it, I thought, well, that's good. That'll be an easy to hit number. David, that might not be as easy to hit uh, as I thought. It, it may not. And now there is a, a waiver process if you don't happen to make that 13 game threshold. But, but I agree with you, Mike. It, I'm not sold yet on conference tournaments, especially with the NCAA requiring seven consecutive negative COVID tests before a team is even allowed to travel to Indianapolis for the centralized NCAA tournament. So I'm, I'm not sure we're out of the woods yet with, with, with league tournaments. Yeah, we're going to talk about that a little more. David, I know we're both really excited about today's show. We've we've said a few times on this podcast, especially during football season, that Virginia linebacker Charles Snowden, he's the kind of player, the kind of guy we could devote an entire episode to. His mm-hmm. off-the-field interests, his his passions, His he's so well-spoken, he's so thoughtful, his play on the field, his story of becoming uh, an NFL prospect was a great one. Today, we're going to get the chance to do that. Uh, a little later in the show, Charles is going to join us, and uh, I, I know I speak for both of us when I say we're really looking forward to that. Absolutely. Uh, I feel smarter every time I talk to that <laughs> young man just because of, of the perspective he, he brings to the conversation and ju- just to have followed him, his evolution as a as an athlete, as a spokesman, as an activist over these four years at UVA has really been a privilege. Well said. And I know a lot of you are looking forward to hearing that. Before we get to Charles, we are going to hit the the two basketball programs, Commonwealth ACC programs here. And let's start with Virginia Tech and Mike Young's team. Uh, they've won three in a row. They're, they're in second place in the ACC. They won a game at Wake Forest despite getting one basket mm-hmm. combined from Keve Aluma and Jalen Cohn, who have been two of their best players this season. David, how did they do it? And what does that tell you about the sustainability of what Mike Young has right now? 
Well, I'll take your latter question first, Mike. I think it says a lot about the Hokies and any team, really. When you can win on the road, and I know that the Deacons are over in in the ACC and probably will end up being the last place team. But when you bring your B or even arguably C game uh, to, to a league contest and yet still win, I think that says a lot. And Virginia Tech did it with defense, and they, they did it with some clutch performances from some other folks, specifically Tyrese Radford and Revelation. Hello, David Gasson. Right? I mean, who, who saw that coming? 13 points off the bench. What was it? Five for five shooting. Uh, yes, I think this group is built for the long haul, uh, much more than, than last year's that, that had, you know, the very optimistic win in Maui uh, over, um, gosh, who, why am I Michigan, Michigan State? Michigan, yeah. Yeah, you know, we've talked about that on this show that that that, that win over Michigan State was great, right? Yeah. Kind of announced Mike Young's, but it felt yeah. like they had done a great job on that day to pull an upset. Then they came out this year and beat Villanova. Um, yeah. Now they've got the win over Duke. Those felt more like, hey, this team is good enough. This is he's built something, and it's interesting. You know, Steve Forbes, the Wake Forest coach, obviously knows Mike Young from Mike's time coaching at Wofford, and uh, he talked about seeing all of the the earmarks of a Mike Young program, of a Mike Young culture, uh, in the way they defended, in the way they played team basketball at Virginia Tech. And uh, it was interesting to hear Steve basically say, hey, it's only year two, but Mike Young's really already put his stamp on how Virginia Tech plays basketball. Yeah, and then Mike Young, in in turn, was asked about Steve Forbes' remarks and he then, in turn, said he gets texts from Frank Beamer and Bud Foster all the time and how he's kind of thought about that defensive mentality and that toughness and grit that kind of is all about Virginia Tech athletics. And that's what he wants his program to look like. And he believes he has it this season. Yeah, and another thing he said that the fans were just swooning over. Uh, he was asked about being up near the top of the ACC standings, about being in the top 25, being ranked, all of those things. And his answer was uh, was sort of telling. It was confident. It was almost dismissive of the question uh, in a polite way. And he said, uh, that's where we're supposed to be. We're Virginia Tech. Uh you know, maybe more bravado than you would expect from from Mike Young. <laughs> maybe more bravado than you would expect from Tech basketball uh, at a school that's been known for football. But David, the fans really, really loved uh, that reaction. Oh yeah, your tweet got thousands of of likes, and I, I don't blame Hokey Faithful for applauding that kind of moxie. You you want to set the bar high. You want expectations. And then it's up to you to go chase them. Yeah, and that's the thing that to me is exciting if you're a Tech fan. Um, Mike Young says all the right things, and, and he's great. He's been great to us. Uh, but, man, you look on the court, he seems to be doing all the right things. And, you know, you mentioned Tyrese Radford. And a year ago, Tyrese kind of playing out of position and um, – this year, he's a little more free to be used in some better matchups. To me, this year, Tyrese Radford and Mike Young, the way he deploys him, they're dictating matchups as opposed to using Tyrese to react to matchups. And I think that's a huge difference for this program. It is, Mike. When when he when he goes downhill mm. on offense and then when he gets on the glass, again, going back to yesterday's ACC Zoom call where – Coach Young said there are some rebounds that Rad forgets where they're just on the bench going, how'd he do that? You know, he's, he's 6'2", and, and yet he, he comes up with these loose, you know, these 50-50 balls or rebounds, and those possessions that he creates or saves or extends, they're invaluable, especially when you've got shooters – such as the other day, notwithstanding, Jalen Cohn. Yeah, they are built as a team that uh, when their three game is on, <laughs> they're really hard to beat, but they have some ways to win uh, when the shots aren't falling. And you know, maybe the best thing about Radford, you know, he went six for six, David, at the free throw line in the final 45 seconds of that game. 
he has that and we struggle as sports writers to quantify it for generations. People have been looking for the word, but that, that clutch gene or that it mm-hmm. factor, whatever it is, um, he may not score 20 points a game, but he'll score 20 points on the night you need him. And he may not hit all his free throws, but he'll hit all his free throws in the last minute when you need it. And his teammates have recognized that, that this is a guy who is going to find a way to win. Um, and I think that permeates this team. Yeah. Co- code player of the week in, in the league, along with Justin Champagny at uh, Pittsburgh, who obviously deserved it as well after his return from a knee injury, getting 24 and 16 the other day against Syracuse. But you mentioned free throws, Mike. I mean, that's a huge difference in this club. You know, I think last year they averaged 13, 15 free throws a game. This year they're up over 20. They had 23 the other night. They're second only to North Carolina in the ACC in free throws attempted. And Carolina's always going to be a top of that because they're, they're always so big and going to get fouled and, and get to the line. But this season, thanks to the guys such as Kev Aluma and Justin Mutz, the, the two transfers, you know, they're, they're getting to the line. Absolutely. And, and this team is bigger. It is stronger. No, it's not North Carolina, but they've made huge strides in that regard. And, and David, that's why I think, I think when I look at this, it looks like a team that that's built to hold up. Now, remember, Mike's team got off to a real good start last year, kind of faded down the stretch, mm-hmm. wasn't very deep, wasn't very big, uh, kind of got beat up in ACC play. This team and the success it's having, it does look sustainable. It does look like this can carry on. Yes, com- completely agree. I think they can be in the chase for the top three, four in the league all the way till the end along with Virginia and perhaps Louisville, Florida State seems to me to be the class of the league. You'd throw Clemson in there, and who knows what we're going to get with, with Duke and Carolina, and heck, maybe even Pitt, which is sitting there at 3-1. and one. It's kind of amazing when you, you think about the ACC and uh, how long you go in the conversation before you get to Duke, Carolina, Louisville. <laughs> uh, you yeah. don't get to Syracuse right now. I mean, um, and I don't know. People are going to have mixed opinions on that. But people are going to say, oh, it's a, a down year in the ACC because it isn't Duke and Carolina. But uh, the teams you just mentioned, David, uh, I think they're great teams. And I think they're built for postseason success with the way almost every one of those teams you named uh, plays defense. Yes, I mean, Clemson, which led the nation in defensive efficiency before UVA, we'll get get to that in a minute. But you look at the standings, Mike, Virginia's sitting there at 5-0, and and there's one, two, three, there's five other teams with one loss in the league. And and another team we haven't mentioned now, granted, Georgia Tech's only played three league games. Mm But the, the, the Jackets are, are, are two and one. And then Duke, Pitt, Florida State, and the Hokies. Well, God willing, we're going to get to see Georgia Tech this weekend. Yeah. Um, we, we were both going to see Boston College and Virginia Tech uh, tomorrow after UVA's game had been canceled. Interesting nugget here, David. And, and, and we've written and, and tweeted about it a little bit. And um, UVA now off on Wednesday night, Tech now off on Wednesday night. To, to guys like me and you, it just seems like, hey, okay, let's put them together on the floor, but that's not happening. Uh, what do you think? Should, should they just kind of man up and, and play that game right now? I would have. I mean, what's the buzzword of a pandemic sports season? Nimble. Have to be nimble. Be flexible. What did Mike Bray tell us on the ACC Zoom week before last? Scouting reports are overrated anyway. Hey, I know it would have been short notice, but when that Boston College-Virginia Tech game got postponed this afternoon, or I guess it was maybe even this morning, I'd have been on the phone and I'd have made that UVA-Virginia Tech game happen because the, the first time has already been postponed. They were supposed to play on January 2nd. UVA couldn't pull it off. So now let's play. I <sighs> short preparation time aside it's a two-hour bus ride it's going to be difficult to get that january 2nd game rescheduled yes i know it would create a wednesday saturday monday 
grind for the Cavaliers, but that's what they were going to have anyway before the NC State game was postponed. I would be stunned if you polled the players from each program and said, you want to go to, you want, you want to run tomorrow night? If it's not 90%, yes, I'm shocked. No, oh, I, yeah, I think it's a hundred percent. You know, it reminds me of, and, and bear with me on the analogy here, but um, we travel a lot by plane and, and we see weather or we see delays or we see problems. And it always shocked me that the airline's attitude wasn't let's get as many people onto our plane and out as we can. Like they'll charge you if you want to change your flight when there's bad weather coming. Uh, And I've never understood that because you want to move people from point A to point B. You want to get their money. You want to move them. To me, the first opportunity you get, let's do it. And that's how I view scheduling in the pandemic. Is it ideal to ask you to play your rival uh, and tell you 24 hours beforehand that that's what's going to happen? No, it's it's not great. Nothing's great right now. Nothing's right. ideal right now. So just is this a way to get a game in? If the answer to that question is yes, I don't care about anything in the cons column. You've got a chance to play one. Let's knock it off the list. I, I look at it as a big checklist, and you're trying to get as much off the list as possible. And the sooner you take a game off that checklist, well, that's one less thing you got to worry about in February or early March. So uh, I get it from a fairness, X's and O's, preparation. It's a big rivalry game, but we're in a pandemic. You guys are only two hours apart by bus. Lace them up and get it done. Yes, and and another you don't have to worry about the TV crews because they're working it remotely anyway. Maybe it was untenable because I, I presume this game would have been at, at, at JPJ because that's where the first game was scheduled to be in the January 30 game is supposed to be in Blacksburg between the two. Was there a problem in, in getting staff rescheduled for Wednesday in Charlottesville? I, I don't know the logistics. I don't understand how that works. I'm not an athletics administrator. But from a purely basketball standpoint, yes, lace them up. Heck, if we need to go to some high school gym, let's play. <laughs> that would have been fun. That would have been fun because UVA, Virginia Tech, they're both playing well. Uh, yeah. UVA, you know, we, we went over Tech. UVA's winners of five in a row. They're alone atop the ACC standings. They're the, the only team in the ACC right now without a conference loss. And, um, you know, you mentioned what they did to Clemson. And yes, Clemson was coming off a break. They had a COVID pause and and that's not easy. But I asked Brad Brownell about it on the call and he basically said, you know, no, don't don't put it on the break. Put it on UVA playing great and, and us not playing very well. Josh Pastner from Georgia Tech said, uh, watching that film, that uh, UVA could have beaten Gonzaga, number one Gonzaga, the way they played against Clemson. Now, David, that may be a stretch, but maybe, but maybe just a bit. But uh, but Virginia looked good. Yeah, absolutely. And we mentioned in discussing the Hokies how different guys at different times, specifically David Gasson coming off the bench. Well, Thomas Woldetensai had done very little of late, and in fact, did not even play against Notre Dame the game previous. And what did he get at Clemson? Was it 14? Yeah. Yeah, and and, and hit a bunch of threes and was was part of that epic first half where Virginia just went went away and and, and hid from the Tigers and there was no drama at all in in the second half. I mean, you you think about it, it's the first time Virginia scored – 80-plus in back-to-back league games since the Lado era in 2007. <laughs> that was a good squad. That's Sean Signal, Singletary and J.R. Reynolds. I mean, those cats could fill it up. And also the largest margin of victory ever for UVA against the top 25 opponent. It really was a, a signature kind of performance, especially as you mentioned, because of Clemson's defensive renown. That that's a good Clemson, a great Clemson defensive team. And again, you, you do want to pause a little bit because they were coming off the break. And and you know, Brad Brownell, the head coach himself, was out of practice for two of the three days as they got mm-hmm. ready for this game. So I wouldn't. I would say this. I was more impressed with Virginia then I was down on Clemson. I thought Virginia played great. I think Clemson's still going to be fine. And um, it's just a thing you're going through in this crazy year. But the good sign for Virginia, David, if you remember a year ago, we weren't quite sure 
where Tony Bennett's bunch was pointed. Uh, they weren't getting perimeter scoring. The offense had these long, long, long lags without points. And then Thomas Wodetense kind of got going from three, and it seemed to get the whole offense just in a new gear. Obviously, they ended the regular season winning eight in a row, the hottest team in the league going into the ultimately cut short ACC tournament. That's kind of the feel I got in this Clemson game, watching not just Wodetense, but Trey Murphy the third and Sam Hauser. UVA hit 15 threes in this game, and yeah. they don't need to do that every time. But if Hauser, Wodetense, Murphy, if those guys are providing that outside punch, this becomes a much, much, much more dangerous UVA team. Don't forget about Jay Huff. Yes, and that is what is the matchup part that makes it so fascinating. Huff and Hauser, as you're five and four, mm-hmm. those are like your European stretch guys. And now you're you're really messing up a defense when their five man needs to go out and cover Jay Huff on the wing. Uh, and you've got Hauser who can score from three. He can score uh, those little short jumpers, those pull ups that he gets. He can drive. He can rebound. He can score on the low block. So they've got some pieces there. And again, especially when you do have to stay home on shooters it becomes a really tough offense to match up with sure does and you know it's essentially it's five guys out you know you you don't have to post up anybody and that is when you can spread the floor like that it is a serious load to defend and clemson had been defending as we mentioned as well as anyone in the country and they just got torched the other night by a team that's A, talented, and B, was playing at darn near its best. Yeah, and it also just kind of brings out Kihei Clark's strengths, I think, when you have that around him, because uh, he's been so good getting into the lane, penetrating. He's been good finishing this year, right? I mean, we've seen him even score some on, on the low block, and certainly part of that is his skill and his talent, but part of it is what you're saying, that there's having to spread out the floor, and that creates a lot of room for a guy like Kihei Clark to operate. And you know who's helping Kihei Clark, Mike? Reese Beekman. Mm-hmm. I like his game and for for a freshman to to come in and earn as much time as he has he's very good with the ball defensively he fits he's so long and he's 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 really engaged on that end of the floor that young man is going to be a player in future seasons at UVA. Yeah, Tony Bennett was asked about the idea of, hey, you know, you're, you're playing Clark and Beekman. You, you've got two point guards on the court together. And what did Tony say? He said, hey, it worked out pretty well when he had Brogdon and Parenthes uh, together. It worked out pretty well when he had Jerome and Clark together. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, you got guys on the floor who can handle the basketball, who can make good decisions, uh, who can play defense. You mentioned Beekman's defense, and that's been huge. Um yeah, I know that they're point guards, but you you can have two of them on the floor and it can work pretty well. And that's something they're going to need moving forward, Mike, against the like, you know, Roy Williams is is back to playing that Carolina trap mm-hmm. in, in the half court and Florida State will swarm you defensively as we talked about earlier. Virginia Tech is very tough defensively. As Virginia hits the teeth of the conference schedule, if that NC State game ever gets mm. gets re- rescheduled, and I believe the Cavaliers also are supposed to go to Raleigh, if memory serves. I, I don't have the schedule right in front of me. You know that the Wolfpack wants to pressure you full court and trap you in the backcourt. That, that Beekman-Clark combination is going to serve UVA well. Yeah, and it's, it's great for the future, too. When, when you just think about the combinations that, that Tony mentioned, like what, what did London Parentis get out of being on the floor with Malcolm Brogdon? What did <laughs> Kihei Clark get out of being on the floor with Ty Jerome? It, it's such a great uh, line of kind of ascension there um, and tutelage to put those guys together. I, I love it. I, I think it's, it's really smart. Yeah. No, couldn't agree with you more. Now, that brings us to this week's Who You Got. Thank you, Mike. You guys have mentioned a lot of uh, great names. Both Virginia Tech and UVA have gotten some all-ACC caliber efforts from their best players so far this year. So who's been the best player in the Commonwealth? Who you got? Let's start with David. Guys, there's no wrong answer here, by the way. You could go three, four different ways. Since I'm a numbers 
guy, perhaps to a fault, and I really like to look at Ken Palm's analytics. He's got Jay Huff as the number 10 player in the country right now based on offensive and defensive efficiency and the numbers he's putting up. I know it's strange to pick a guy who's only averaging, I believe, 23 minutes a game, but the numbers he's producing during those minutes and the matchup issues he presents, I'm going to say Jay Huff. Mike? That's a great answer. I, I was weighing Huff and Hauser at UVA. I was weighing Radford uh, over at Virginia Tech. But at the end, I, I'm going to go with Keve Aluma. Um, mm-hmm. And part of it maybe is the impact, right? And, and the impact that we didn't expect. But this is a guy who's averaging just under 15 points a game. I think it's 14.8. He's averaging 7.3 rebounds a game. He's brought a front court presence to Virginia Tech. And this past game aside, and this past game is the one that gave me pause, he's been so consistent for them. Um, he's made great defensive plays. He had that block late in the win over Duke. Um, he leads the team with 18 block shots. He moves the ball well. To me, Keve Aluma has been I mean, a revelation. I think he's first-team all-conference all caliber player right now. Uh, and to me, I look at these teams, and he, he's the MVP, <laughs> if we're going with that mindset, of Tech or UVA. To me, Keve Aluma uh, has been the guy so far. Mike, that's another great choice. And I'm sitting here looking at Ken Palm's all-ACC team as of this moment. Jay Huff one, Keve Aluma four. Hey, not bad. There you so, go. I guess we know what we're talking about. (laughs) Well, let's not get carried away. (laughs) Well, at least you do because you had number one. Well, our guest joining us now was a big football star at UVA. He's got his sights set on the NFL, but uh, Charles Snowden knows his way around a basketball court too and uh, was actually a pretty highly regarded recruit in, in that sport. Charles, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I'm happy to be here. So, so tell me, I, I know that uh, basketball was kind of one of your first loves and uh, some colleges had interest in you. Have you, uh, have you kept playing the game? Do you get in pickup games, any of that? Yeah, I definitely try to as much as I can. Um, it's kind of hard during the season. Uh, and then with COVID, it was extremely hard. But uh, <laughs> so I haven't played in a while, but back uh, under normal circumstances, I always try to get a game every now and then. And have you kept tabs on the, on the UVA team, and, and what's kind of your impression of what they've got going on this season? Oh, yeah. I'm a big fan of this UVA team. Um, I mean, I love UVA, and I love basketball, so naturally I love UVA's basketball team. But they, I like them a lot because they kind of play basketball how I used to play. So they're a big defense-first team, and, I mean, defense travels. Whether you're hitting shots or not, defense always travels. And they have, I mean, they just have so many weapons now. Uh, Kihei stepping up, Sam Hauser. Um, I don't know how to say his last name, Wolden, you know, Stensai, and then of course, Jay Huff, Rome in the middle. Like, I mean, I think they have weapons all over, and Trey Murphy, like, I, I really like this team a lot. Defense first, Charles. That's music to Tony Bennett's ears and Bronco, <laughs> or defense travels, excuse me. Music to Tony Bennett's ears and, and Broncos as well. If you would update us on, on your health and, and, and how your rehab is going from the ankle. Yeah, it's um go, it's going really well. Uh, I'm in Pensacola, Florida, um, at the Andrews Institute with Exos, uh, rehabbing every day, and so um, every day kind of increases mobility, increases strength, and so I mean I'm in a walking boot now, but I can walk pretty fine without it. And so um, I've now started this week uh, doing uh, modified lower body lifts, and so um, it's it's healing really well. I don't know how similar the injuries were, but have you used Bryce Hall, your former teammate, as a sounding board? And, and do you take encouragement from his really excellent rookie season in, in the league? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, the injuries were almost identical. The only difference was Bryce also dislocated his ankle, whereas mine was just a break in some torn ligaments. But um, I mean, definitely like knowing the type of guy Bryce is, I know how hard he worked to get back to where he is now. And so that kind of tells me what it'll take to get there. And then to see him have success so early on um, definitely inspires me and kind of tells me that, you know, like I'm capable of doing that as well. Charles, we don't want to relive the the bad stuff, but just real quickly take us through um, what was it like to, to suffer that injury in a year when you guys are working so hard just to get on the field? Uh, what was it like to go through that? And how do you think you kind of handled it emotionally? Um, it was definitely tough. Um, it, it was like, 
crazy to uh, to end that way. Um, like the the whole like in the back of my head, like I've just been thinking like fourth year, like it's not supposed to end like this. And then when I had the injury, I was like, wow, it's really not supposed to end like this. But um, it was definitely tough. Uh, I was I, right after I had my surgery, I was just home for a while and just kind of living on my couch. My parents bringing me anything I needed, just hard to move around. And uh, that was really tough. But um, once I was able to get down to Charlottesville and kind of put my coaching hat on and just be be back around the guys, uh, that, I mean, it really turned everything around for me, just being with teammates, coaches, my roommates, everything. Like, it made the world of a difference. What was it like being sidelined for that tech game? Oh, my God. That was – it's hard to even talk about. But that – yeah, that, that wasn't easy at all. And um, to be out there not being able to help my guys um, – I mean, that hurts. I remember you watching you come out on, on senior day for the Boston College game on that scooter and thinking, you know, kind of using your phrase, this is not how it's supposed to end for for Charles Snowden. But still, was it pretty cool to be able to go through that and, and be on the sideline that day for obviously in front of a limited crowd, but the final home game of the season as it turns out your career? Um, yeah, I mean, I was extremely appreciative um, to be – to be there, to be able to like, to, to the athletic trainers allowing me to still be around the guys, and um, I mean, it, I was so happy that we got the win, and to see guys like Matt Gam in his last game at Scott Stadium playing so well, to see Elliot Brown on his senior day playing so well, like that, like I mean, that just made me so excited. Now, you're a guy who did not come to Virginia as the NFL prospect that you are right <laughs> now. I mean, you had what? They were the only offer. Is that correct? Yeah, University of Virginia was my only football offer. What What does it mean to you, your your growth, your personal progress, but the way the program kind of mirrored it? It's like you got here lightly regarded, the program probably lightly regarded at that point, um, and to see you and UVA kind of make the climb you have, what's that like to be, be a part of? I mean, it's so exciting. It's it's cool. Like, I mean, we were Coach Mental Hall's first recruiting class. And so we've to see the growth that it went through. Um, Coach Atawai used to always say to us, it's not a matter of if, just a matter of when. And so to really see that, like, begin to happen. Uh, I mean, I'm excited. I, I truly believe, like, this is just the foundation. Like, this is just the beginning. I mean, the culture is now in place. And now every year, I mean, you know, I don't think I was a bad player, but I was just, you know, lowly two-star recruit. I, they're not bringing in many of those guys anymore. Now they're getting more three, four-star guys. And so now when you mix that talent with that culture, I mean, I'm really excited for the direction of this program. David asked you about the the emotion on, on senior day and being a part of that. I'm curious if you're willing to share. Did you know at that point, was your decision made that that, that was going to be it for you? Or, or was there still some question in your mind? Um, I'd pretty much known at that point. Uh, I'd honestly, like, I hadn't given it too much, like, serious thought. Like, nothing was set in stone. But I knew that was kind of the way I was leaning. And so I knew uh, more likely that that was going to be my last one to Scott. Were you leaning that way, Charles, even before your injury? Yeah, definitely. Um, Kind of no matter how the rest of the season played out, it was most likely going to be my last season. Yeah. And obviously, you know, the injury against – Abilene Christian, you know, a, a downer of a conclusion, but the arc of your season where you admittedly started on the slow side, but then started to pick it up at Miami and then really rounded into form. Did you feel like when you got hurt that you were playing the best football of your Virginia career? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, like, like you said, I definitely got off to a slow start this season. And I think that the biggest turning point for me was uh, I remember being in the locker room at Miami. Um, I feel like in, in the Wake Forest game, I started to play a little bit better. And then the next one was Miami. And I just remember being in the locker room and Coach Grizz just kind of said, look, Charles, like, I don't know what's going on with you, but you work so hard this offseason to put on that size and that strength. And like, you've earned that, like, go out there and use it. And so, I mean, when he said that to me, I was just like, that's a good point. So I just tried to start running through people and it started to work. And so um, after that, I kind of, uh, I was always joking, like, there's a video, like, I got my swagger back. And so that's kind of what I was saying. That's kind of how I was feeling. And so, uh, yeah, about around that Wake Forest Miami game, like I kind of got my swagger back and I was kind of playing the best football I'd played at UVA. 
I'm I'm curious. I'm glad David brought that up because um, Coach Mendenhall, not really criticism, but he said, you know, Charles is playing fine, but he's not making a big impact. And then I asked UVA for permission to interview you. And a lot of guys in that spot, you know, their season isn't going great yet. Their coach just said something kind of critical. A lot of guys don't take that interview. <laughs> a lot of guys just tell me no. Uh, I'm curious why you agreed to, to talk to me. And, and then I will say, you know, I thought your answers were, were so spot on that you basically you agreed with Bronco and then you turned your season around. But um, why, why did you have the comfort level to, to kind of uh, talk about that topic? Um, because I think I, I know what I'm capable of. And so uh, shying away from the facts, running from that, that's not going to make me a better football player. Um, that, that would make me much of a football player if I can't honestly look at myself, look at the tape, and say, you're not playing to your capabilities. And so I thought, I mean, there was nothing to kind of, I wasn't, obviously I was disappointed in myself, but I wasn't, at no point was I like sad, moping, like, oh, what was me? I just said, hey, you got you got to pick it up. And so, I mean, there was no, there was no like necessarily feeling as to, um, I don't want to talk about it because, I mean, these are the facts and you got to address the facts to fix it. Uh, that brings us to another thing that I really want to get into a topic here, which is dealing with the pandemic. And, and that day when we did that interview, you told me um, you admitted that it was kind of hard to get yourself going without people in the stands that you said you're a guy who feeds off the energy from the crowd. It's been hard to replace that. Um, what was that like that experience of, I mean, playing in, in mostly empty stadiums? It was so strange. I mean, it, it, it was just the weirdest thing, but I mean, I kind of got used to it after a while and we just kind of drew that energy from other places. Like obviously you can't replace 50,000 people with a sideline, but I mean, we can try our best and we did. And I mean, we just kind of would try to have more fun on the field. Um, just get yourself going and just accept the fact kind of like, uh, talked about earlier, just like accepting the facts. And so addressing that and just trying to find that motivation from elsewhere. Charles, how, how grueling, maybe more so mentally, than physically were the COVID protocols and did fatigue from that contribute to the team decision to decline any, any postseason invitation? Yeah. Um, I, it definitely was more mentally than it was physically, but it was, it was tough both ways. Just um, the uncertainty of not having a season. And then um, because there was no spring ball, we started football, like playing football so much earlier than we normally would in terms of fall camp. So fall camp was extended. So, I mean, guys were playing football from July until late November, December. And so, I mean, that's just tough. There's, it, it was just tough on guys. And then to not be able to see our families after games, um, stuff like that, it, it was, it was 100% a grind. And uh, I mean, I wasn't playing in the game, so I didn't, I didn't want to really necessarily sway guys one way or another. And I completely understand why everyone voted that way because it was definitely a grind. How many times would you estimate you were tested for COVID? Oh my God. Let's see now. Three times a week from August to December. Um, golly, I'm not that great at math, August, but it, it, it was yeah, a lot. December, yeah. Probably 60, 70 times. Exactly. There was somebody on our team who was keeping track of every single test, but I cannot, I, I don't remember who it was, but they had, they, they know the exact number. Was there a moment, Charles, for you, and, and obviously you guys handled it so well and, and you got your season in, and um, I think that's remarkable in and of itself, but was there ever a moment for you where you thought to yourself, why are we doing this? This this is this is crazy. <laughs> uh, nah, for me, I was, I mean, I, I was excited to play. Like, I was like, I mean, I don't necessarily think I needed like a, why are we, like, we're playing football. I don't know, like, that. <laughs> I love playing football. That's, I'm excited to play. But uh, I mean, I'm, at the same time, like there are very like, so if, I, if we were getting tested and that's for a hundred guys on the team, I mean, that's upwards. And then you have the support staff as well. Like that's upwards of over a thousand tests that, I mean, there are, and we're all um, young, healthy men. Like you could make the argument that is a very valid argument that those tests could be used within the Charlottesville community. Like there are people that don't have access to tests like that and that. They uh, could be immunocompromised or they could be a little bit older. And so from that aspect, I thought, yeah, I mean, this probably is, this is definitely not the best use of resources in terms of uh, public health. But at no point was I like, why are we playing football? Like, we don't need to play this sport during the pandemic. Bronco was, was pretty transparent during the season 
Charles about how conflicted he was by the entire exercise of trying to play in a, in a pandemic. And, you know, his, his son's season was originally canceled out at Utah state and then they reversed course and, and decided to play. And then you all were trying to play. Did, did he share some of his, you know, inner struggles about all this with the team? Oh yeah, definitely. Um, he said to us, um, he was very blatantly like, um, I want to coach you guys. I don't want to play football, but, um, if, if like at some point, like a, a new rules instituted that like you can't see people outside your bubble. So if he said like, I can't see my family, then, um, he said that he probably would opt out of the season. And so he was always very, as upfront as he was with you guys, he was upfront with us and was just very honest about how he felt. And, uh, he told us that, you know, it's probably not the best situation to play, but if we want to play, he'll, uh, he'll coach us. What was your reaction? What, what's your, what's the team's reaction to a, a coach being that kind of open and honest? Um, I mean, that at least tells us that he has awareness of what's going on. And so he can acknowledge that this is not easy for anyone and that he, like, at least he knows. Now, would he go out there and coach us and coach us hard? And yeah, but we knew that he knew that these were not normal circumstances and that this was tough on everyone. What was the hardest non-football part for you in terms of just your daily life or how you kind of got around who you could see or or couldn't see what was the what was the biggest impact for you away from the field um for me i mean it'd probably be like just escaping football like escaping that football bubble um (laughs) like i I i'd love like i just enjoyed going to class or like uh this place on grounds called the the path and it has chick-fil-a and people just hang out there all day i mean i would just hang out there and just I mean, I see my teammates, but also just see like friends and just seeing people. And I would not have to think about the sport of football. Whereas this year, I mean, you leave practice and then you just go home to your apartment and just kind of just sit there with your teammates who are often your roommates. And um, and then your coaches notes and you have Zoom calls about watching film for practice. And it was just at some points, it was just very overwhelming with football. But uh I think guys began to get creative and find escapes and that kind of, that helped people get out that football bubble. Now with, with that as the backdrop and that going on in, in the country and everything, there was also all of this that you got very involved in, in terms of the movements for social justice and, um, you know, things with athlete empowerment. And tell me, uh, what was it like to, to kind of find yourself, um, not just kind of in it, but at times at the forefront and, uh, what was it like to be a part of all of that? Um, it was definitely a, um, a eye-opening experience, I would say, and um, I was I'm I'm still am just very excited to see uh, players kind of take ownership of their lives, and now you kind of see players uh, beginning to have more say, and uh, I'm excited for that. And just the, I mean, the battle for social justice that's been going on since this country was founded, and so I'm just trying to do my part in uh, trying to. Uh, fight for what I believe to be right. As our as our friend Gene Wong from the Washington Post wrote about th- this summer, social activism is not new to you. I mean, as as a junior at St. Albans, after Colin Kaepernick had taken a knee for the national anthem, you did too. D- describe, if you would, kind of your 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 start is. It, into making social statements and why you did it? Um, yeah, I mean, I've always kind of just been a pretty outspoken person. Um, my grandma always tells me that I was a fairly socially aware person, just always at a young age. And so I think that um, I just kind of know right from wrong. And if I see something's wrong, then I'm going to speak up about it because wrong is wrong. And so I, I did. A, I took a knee for one game, but then I just kind of as I reflected on that, it, it just seemed very like me, me, me. And so um, after that, I just kind of sat down, had a conversation with my teammates and we uh, decided to all link arms. Like the whole team would link arms during the anthem, um, kind of stand together and stand against injustice and stuff like that. And so, uh, I mean, towards the end of the season, we kind of did have guys who broke off and would just put their hand over their heart for the anthem. And that was their decision. But uh, I definitely tried to make it more team uh, group statement rather than just Charles Snowden standing alone and saying something. Yeah. Now, college football players are in the locker room for the anthem. If they had been on the field this season, 
What do you think the Cavaliers might have done? Um, I don't know. I don't. I don't think I can say for certain what we'd have done. I think I maybe have some ideas, but um, I think we definitely would have made a statement of some sort to kind of represent where where we are, where we stand. Now, I'm curious, you know, we're, we're recording this on January 19th, so that the day after we're uh, celebrating Martin Luther King and, and his legacy. And um, this is a hard question, obviously, for a young guy or for anybody to answer. But Charles, does it feel like the movement that we're in now, that, that you're a part of now, that we're all uh, seeing unfold, does it feel like it has the legs to, to finally maybe get us over the hump? Or does it feel like things you've read about in history that we've kind of started down this path before and never seemed to to quite finish the job um i think that it's it's set i mean uh institutional racism and systemic racism like it's uh injustice like it is so deeply rooted in america that it's going to take a lot a lot more time to root out like it's not just it's so much deeper than just simply police brutality it's like now when you look at covid um now we're talking about rolling out the vaccine and vaccine distribution well, the government thinks that it's best you uh, distribute it through uh, CVS and Walgreens and uh, stores like that. Well, those are companies. And so companies place those pharmacies in places where they think they can garner the most profit. So there are many CVSs in low income neighborhoods and those low co- income neighborhoods are mostly black and brown neighborhoods. And so because of that, black and brown people are not as accessible to the vaccine. And you look at jobs that didn't have the luxury of being able to have meetings over Zoom. You have jobs where you have to go in and work your manual labor. Well, those jobs, those blue collar jobs are mostly are predominantly black and brown people. So they've been more exposed to the virus. And so it's so much more than simply than like just a couple issues. We think it is so deeply rooted and so intertwined that it's going to take. I don't I don't know if I'll see the quality of my lifetime, but I know that I'm going to keep fighting for that because it is, it's going to take a lot more work. Now, you've got all of these issues on your mind, all of these things to think about, the pandemic, and you're working for an NFL future. So tell us a little bit about uh, what that experience is like and, and uh, kind of what's your outlook? What, what, what do you expect uh, to happen with you here as we go into this draft process? Um, I don't know. I don't think I've – I mean, like you said earlier, I didn't really plan on being in this position. And so now that I am uh, – I don't think I necessarily have any expectations or I just know that I just know what I am capable of and um, I'm going to maximize every day and give it everything I have because this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. And I mean, the NFL, like that's something every kid dreams about. Even though I grew up a basketball player, I mean, I watched NFL football every Sunday with my dad. And so now to be in this position, uh, I'm going to make the most of it. In that regard, Charles, are you looking forward to – continuing your activism with hopefully in the NFL an even larger platform than you had at UVA and related to that have you watched as former UVA athletes such as Chris Long and Malcolm Brogdon have done exactly that um of course definitely uh there's made uh, increased platform increased resources at the next level as well and so um definitely looking to take advantage of those because, uh, I mean, the bigger the platform, the more people you can help. And on the flip side of that, uh, I mean, the better player you are, the more success you have, this is naturally a bigger platform. And so uh, making sure that I understand that football is what I do and making sure I'm taking care of that. But, um, I mean, the better that, that I am, the more people I can kind of help. And so I'll definitely be looking to um, Chris Long and Malcolm Brogdon. I mean, they kind of set the blueprint out. I'll have to do is follow it. Is there a is there a moment that you thought that an NFL dream was realistic? I mean, you mentioned you were a, a basketball guy, and then you know you came to UVA and, and turned into a star. But like we talked about, you know, not not that heralded coming in. Was there a moment that for you in your mind you thought, hey, the NFL dream is more of a realistic goal for me? Um, I don't think it really hit me until this summer or like kind of this off season when I would kind of see stuff online like. Oh yeah, Charles. So we prospects, upcoming prospects this year, this year to keep an eye on. And I mean, I don't really read too much into that stuff on the internet because I mean, at the end of the day, it's just someone sharing their opinion. Which I mean, I, it's I'm, it's flattering, but their opinion doesn't necessarily hold any weight at the next level. Um, but once I started to see it consistently, I was like, oh wow, maybe this maybe this is an option. Charles, if I, if if I could 
tandem of a football and social activism question here as, as we as we wrap up. You grew up in in the DMV there in, in suburban Washington. What was your reaction when Washington's NFL franchise dropped the nickname and went to a more generic and vowed to change it? Um, I was excited. I grew up a lifelong Washington football fan. One of my best friends growing up, this is not an exaggeration, every night before bed, when I would sleep over, his dad would come in and sing Hail to the Redskins every night before bed. <laughs> wow. So um, definitely huge Washington football fans. And um, I think that it was the right thing to do to change the name. And uh, now that, you know, change the name, got some good juju going, curses lifted, made the playoffs. So, you know, I think that, I think there's a direct correlation. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> Taylor Heineke, how about that effort there? Heineke. <laughs> well, we've we've asked you some pretty heavy stuff. <laughs> I do want to end on a lighter note. <laughs> um, I'm curious, as you look back on, on your UVA career, um, was there a moment or two, not the most important or the most significant, but but maybe the most fun or, or the thing you you look back on, the moment you look back on, and and maybe it makes you smile automatically? What what stands out in that regard? Ah. Uh, it's got to be um, – I mean, I, I don't know if I can look back at, like, one moment, but I can say that, like, finishing every, like, offseason, our workouts, Pride, we call them Pride Friday. on Every Friday, they were the hardest workout of the week. And finishing a Pride Friday, like, in the last 15 minutes of it, knowing it's wrapping up soon, giving everything you got, like, I would kind of turn to some of my teammates, like, hey, 15 more minutes to the weekend, man. Come on, let's get through it. Then we get to the weekend. And then sitting in the locker room, like, sometimes <laughs> – we would sit in that locker room. Workouts would end at eight. I'm talking, we would not like, we would lay down in the locker room till like 840. Like we wouldn't even start trying to shower. It was like 840 just because we were just dead. And like those moments in the locker room were just so fun knowing that you could, you'd go through that with your teammates that morning and then go home, take a nap and then go hang out with your teammates later, celebrate the hard work you just did. Like those moments right there, like that's what I look back on and smile. And that's what I'll miss the most. Well, that's great. And UVA fans, you gave them a lot of memories to look back on and smile. It's been a ton of fun to watch you play here at UVA, and it's been a lot of fun to get to know you uh, off the field as well. Oh, thank you. The pleasure has been all mine. And I mean, I can't thank you guys. I can't thank UVA. I mean, I, the fans, I'm just so grateful. I, I didn't expect any of this when I got here, but I'm just so, and that just makes me even more grateful. Well, best of luck to Charles Snowden. Thanks Absolutely. for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, guys. You can subscribe to Teal and Barber on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your favorite podcasts. And please consider supporting local journalism with an online subscription to the TD. You can find special promotional offers available at richmond.com. A very special thanks to Charles Snowden for joining us on today's show. The show was produced by Dean Hoffmeyer. Teal and Barber is a podcast of the Richmond Times-Dispatch and richmond.com. For David Teal, I'm Mike Barber. Thanks for listening. Be healthy and safe. And please join David and me again next week.